Psalm 11. <laughs> so, and um, but thank you for being here. I have a couple of outlines on the board. Most divide this psalm into two parts. You have the situation, and this is the bare bones outline here. As far as what I've said, verses one through three explain the situation. And verses 4 through 7 focus on the Lord as the solution to the situation. Now, you might have people word it more eloquently. Certainly most commentators do. But the situation in verses 1 through 3 and then the Lord as the, the answer to that in verses 4 through 7. Now, another outline I like. This was a chiasm. This a chiasm here in Psalm 11. You begin with the security of the psalmist. Then you have the threat of the wicked. And right at the center part of this chiasm is the sovereignty of God. That's key. That's focal. The sovereignty of God. Then the destiny of the wicked takes the place of the threat of the wicked. And the destiny of the psalmist and the destiny of the righteous is corresponding to the security of the psalmist mentioned before. Uh, These are just ways to be of aid to you in breaking down the psalm and getting a feel of it. Let me read it from the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director, a psalm of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids, His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he rains snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Who are the main characters in this psalm? First of all, the psalm mentions the wicked in verse 2. The wicked bend the bow to to shoot at the righteous. That's verse 2. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And in verse 6, upon the wicked he rains snares. So one of the main characters of this particular psalm are the wicked. Then another main character is... The righteous. The righteous is mentioned in verse 3. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then in verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. 
So the righteous are key in 11 verse 3, in 11 verse 5. Also, this text uses the word upright. It uses the word upright to refer to the same group of people. The wicked are shooting at the upright in heart, 11.2. And 11 verse 7, the text tells us that the Lord is, is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. So the wicked, the righteous, the upright, they are key characters. But always in the biblical text, the key character is the Lord. And the Lord is going to be mentioned uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, in verse 4, a couple of times, then in verse 5, and in verse 7. In all these cases, the Lord is a center stage. And so He is to be our focus. So, in this psalm, interestingly, God is not addressed. He is not spoken to, but He is spoken of. What is the situation that gave rise to this psalm? We can't be 100% sure. Some commentaries think they can, but what's interesting to me is a lot of commentaries say they've discovered the time of the writing of the psalm, the situation of the writing of the psalm, and yet rarely do two of them agree with each other. So that's an indication it's really hard to do. But let's read these first three verses again. In the Lord... I have taken refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So the psalm begins, In the Lord I take refuge. Now I want you to see that this is a prominent idea. A refuge is a place of shelter, a place of protection, a place of hiding in time of difficulty. And I want you to see that this idea has already been used frequently before in the psalms. In Psalm 2 verse 12, the Bible says, Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. And His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed or blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That was Psalm 2 and verse 12. In Psalm 5 verse 11, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them. Those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 7 verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me. And we're going to see the same thing uh, continuing uh, throughout the Psalms. Uh, for example, in Psalm 16, 1, Preserve me, O God, 
for I have taken refuge in you. And then in Psalm 31, in verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. And you know we could give a lot more illustrations than that. But all of these stress the need for us to find security, protection, refuge, shelter, however we want to describe it, to just take that in the Lord. David? Uh, the New King James translates the first part of verse 1, In the Lord I put my trust. Okay. Uh, a little different. Yes, yes. It would be the same, the same idea... Uh, but um, it would be um, a little different. It, one of the things, the words in the Lord do come first in the Hebrew text there, uh, which in, is interesting. It's trying to make that uh, emphatic. But I am looking, uh, David, if this is the same word uh, that is translated refuge. Yes, it's the same word. It's the words generally translated refuge, but some of those words are very close in meaning. Now I want to tell you this: there was a time when I felt, and there may be a little bit of this that's true, but there was a time in my life when I felt that the deep things of Scripture were finding some kind of technical argument that would forever vanquish premillennialism or something like that. But I found out those are not the real deep things of Scripture. The real deep things of Scripture are taking refuge in the Lord. That's a deep thing. I'm not saying necessarily conceptually to apply or conceptually to understand, but to practice and to apply, that is difficult. And I know in this room, if we were to go around, there are all kinds of problems. Many of us blessed to have small ones. Some of you have large ones. And I just talking to, to Don earlier about uh, his back and his back problems and and um, and how the doctor was surprised he's able to carry on his job with all of his pain. We all have difficult difficulties in one way or the other. And the answer for each of us in some way is this, to take refuge in God. To, to, to view God as our security. But it's it's not easy. It's not easy in the midst of whatever our problems are because whatever our problems are, is usually our problem is usually the very thing we would choose not to be our problem and it will come at the most inopportune time. All these things are true. And to learn to take refuge in the Lord and to really apply that is a deep thing in Scripture. So understand we are dealing with a, a big matter in this. And really all this psalm is about this theme in one way or the other. But but let's see the situation. It said, how can you say 
He first affirms his countercultural faith in the Lord I've taken refuge. But then he says, How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? And again, it's interesting to read and to see all the ideas here. Some say, oh, these people who were saying this to the psalmist were his friends. And his friends are giving him this counsel and saying, listen, it's a difficult time. It's a time of trouble. Flee as a bird to the mountains. Other people say, oh, no, the speakers here are his enemies and are telling him to run, get away uh, for... um, it's a dangerous time and they're threatening to do worse things if he doesn't get away. The answer to that, who says this, we do not know. But they are telling him that the answer in the midst of this difficulty is to flee. To flee as a bird to the mountain. Now we'll come back to that idea of fleeing like a bird in a moment. But, but, but first of all, why would they, why would anybody say this? Whether they're friend or foe. Because this is obviously a dangerous time. It said the wicked bend the bow to make ready their arrows upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of heart. The wicked are pictured as drawing their bow and shooting their arrows at the righteous. We saw that same picture in 7 verses 12 and 13. In 7 verse 13, he has also prepared for himself deadly weapons to make his arrows fiery shafts. And you may remember the discussion we had there on that particular passage. But he uses hunting imagery as the psalmist is told to flee as a bird to the mountains. Some are taking a, a, a bow and arrows and they're shooting at this particular bird. And the text says they're shooting in darkness. What would be the idea there? In darkness. They're in hiding. The ones who are doing the shooting are hiding. Several years ago, and some of you will remember this, there's some cases that terrified American public. As I remember, it was I-95 up the East Coast, and under the cover of darkness, there was a sniper who was just shooting at people randomly on the road. When you shoot in the midst of darkness like that at a random contact, it's hard for you to ever find out who committed the crime. And a matter of fact, if they would have stopped with one or two, they would have never, never been called. To shoot in the darkness tries to shoot to try to escape attention. But it's also very dangerous for the one that shot at. Because they can't see it coming and they don't have any protection and they're not going to be looking for any if they don't know the disaster is coming. So this is a way that increases the anonymity of the one doing the shooting and it increases the vulnerability of the one at whom they are shooting And he says, if the foundations are destroyed, 
What can the righteous do? Psalm 82 verse 5 has a similar statement to that. Psalm 82 and verse 5, it says, They do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. The foundations are shaken. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? Now, there's sometimes in the Bible that this image kind of a foundations is used. For example, it's used... I don't believe the same Hebrew word, but it's used in Ezekiel 30, verse 4, talking of Egypt. Just listen to the verse, and how would you interpret what the foundation is based on this verse? Ezekiel 30, and verse 4. The Bible says... A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they will take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. How would you interpret foundation? Right there. It may be literal, the whole the literal foundation of the city, but it may be particularly her wealth. You know, everything that she had, all her, all her wealth, all her, her riches, they are taken away. Her foundations are torn down. Isaiah talked about judgment on Egypt, and he talked about the pillars of Egypt being crushed in Isaiah Isaiah 19.10. And he talked about the princes of Memphis are deluded, the cornerstone of the tribes. Now this is my point. That was Isaiah 19 verse 10, Isaiah 19 verse 13, that the leaders of the people were referred to as their pillars and their cornerstones. Maybe it refers to the taking away of prominent leaders who knew what they were doing in leading and guiding the people. And maybe it's the very the very structure on which society stands. Like, for example, that men and women are different. Is that controversial? Wow. And what are the righteous to do? What are the righteous to do at a time like that? If the foundations are destroyed, what can they do? Now the answer to that is going to be given in just a moment. But but let's go back to that particular picture to flee as a bird to the mountain. In other words, just, you just get away. This is the problem that the upright are being shot at by those who are wicked and, and the wicked are doing this in secret and, and let's, just, let's just run away and let's hide. But I want to look at that image of fleeing like a bird to the mountain. Now, first of all, the idea of a bird, here are some passages that, that kind of speak of the bird... Uh, in ways similar here, okay? 
um, Psalm 102, verses 6 and 7, Psalm 124, 7, Proverbs 27, verse 8. Now let's start and just see um, if they can help us any in this, in this picture. Psalm 102, verse 6 and 7, I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl in waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. Now, none of those sound very good. Uh, the pelican of the wilderness, the owl in waste places, uh, the the lonely bird on the housetop. In Psalm uh, Psalm one twenty four and verse seven, Psalm one twenty four verse seven, our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken, and we. Have escaped. In Proverbs 27, verse 8, like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man that wanders from his home. In all these pictures, the, the bird looks rather weak and helpless, lonely. And if we can use such words, the birds. Homeless. And the bird is wandering off from his net. The bird is nowhere to go. And, and, and all of these are pictures that can be used. Uh, this is some ways the bird is used. And, and so what I'm saying, here are some passages that use this in a not so great way. But there are other passages that speak of taking refuge under the wings of the Lord. Taking refuge under His wings. That is a picture of, of trust. That is a picture of confidence. And, and you see uh, that picture in thirty-six Psalm 36 verse 7. Psalm 57 verse 1. Psalm 61 and verse uh, 4. And Psalm 91 and verse 4. So it's interesting, while the bird can be a picture of one that's helpless and lonely and weak, it can be a picture of one who takes refuge. From the psalmist's perspective, this is where he wants to be, as one who takes refuge in the Lord, one who finds shelter in the Lord. Now, I want you to think about this. Can you think of any time in the Bible that a righteous, righteous people, righteous characters were told to flee. And they said, we're not fleeing. I know all you got to do is quickly compute all 66 books, okay? It's a small task I ask of you. <laughs> 66 books. And, and can you think of any... I don't know if I would have thought of them if... Some writers didn't bring them up. Well, they asked Paul uh, not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to get to that one in just a moment. Paul going to Jerusalem in Acts 21. David? A lot of his family were told to flee, and 
Well, he should have fled. He didn't flee too quickly. And that was where God did tell him. God tells him in that case. What I'm thinking of particularly are a couple of cases, and I'll show you, where people were told to flee who didn't. And the ones, um, they were told to flee, but they stood, are, I think about Nehemiah in Nehemiah 6. And Nehemiah is told, hey, tonight people are coming in and they're going to kill you and you and I need to go to the temple. And Nehemiah says, should a man like me flee? Now, Nehemiah wasn't a Levite. He didn't belong in the temple. He wasn't a priest. He he really wasn't supposed to go to the temple. And this was an effort to undermine him. Another instance that I think of is in Luke 13, 31 and 32, where they say to Jesus, some Pharisees, go away for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said, you go and tell that fox that behold, I, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will reach Jerusalem. It's Luke 13 and really it's it's the same context, verses 31 through 33. Now there's a couple of occasions that I think, this is why these may have been enemies. We really don't know if those Pharisees intended bad against Jesus or good. We don't know. But but there are a couple of cases where it's obviously well-meaning people. And that's, that's one that, that Boyd mentioned, for example, where you know Agabus comes in Acts 21 and binds himself with Paul's girdle and says, this is what the Jews at Jerusalem are going to do to the man who owns this battle. And when he says that, all the brethren start pleading with Paul, telling him not to go. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound at Jerusalem, but to die there for His name. And it said, when we saw He was determined to go, we gave up pleading with Him. Now, they're pleading in His best interest, aren't they? And there are points in Paul's career, he runs, doesn't he? I'm not saying it's always wrong, to flee. And David gave the illustration there of Lot where God told him to flee. Not saying that's always wrong. When Paul snuck over the city walls in a basket in Acts 9, verses 23 through 29, all of them are working together to save his life where he can go and preach somewhere else. But sometimes people. In good intentions, tell others to flee when they need to stand. And I'll tell you another illustration of that. When Jesus began to teach His disciples that He was going to be crucified and the third day rise again, Peter took Him aside and said, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Were Peter's motives good? Were his intentions good? Was he wanting to protect Jesus? I mean, we would say all of those things are are good. He was stepping in the way of God's plan. And Jesus never gave anyone a stronger one-word rebuke than saying to Peter, Satan, again, I don't know all the answers here. 
we do find clear examples of David fleeing from Saul, of Paul fleeing from city to city in the preaching of the gospel. Not saying that every case that's wrong. But I am saying this shows us a case apparently where it's not the time to run away. It's the time to stand even if that makes you a target for those who are shooting from the darkness. How can we do that? How can we stand only to become target practice? And how can we flee like Paul did from city to city knowing that he's running from one crisis to another? The answer is going to give him be given in 4 through 7. Did you have a thought there, Brian? Um, yeah, I was just noticing when you read the passages um, about the foundations being destroyed, the wealth and the leaders uh, that were mentioned there um, are things that you tend to trust in and take refuge in, uh, and those are being destroyed, so what do, you, what do you do if that's what you've been trusting in? And here, you know, if um, it may even, even seem to the righteous. What can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? Yeah. Um, and if the foundations are wealth or whatever that you tend to take refuge in other than God, then yeah, it may seem like you need to flee like yeah. a bird. Yeah. But instead, um, when you see things that everyone else is taking refuge in, um, to instead take refuge in, in God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where do we take refuge? Everyone takes refuge somewhere. And uh, taking refuge uh, can be an act of faith or an act of unbelief depending on where it is taken. Uh, but, uh, and we all face, uh, we all face points of crisis which are too big for us. Where do we go? And I love that song, except for one line, where could we go but to the Lord? David? Yeah, my mind went a different direction more the way Brad was talking. When I think of a bird fleeing to the mountain, it's like, that's a good place for a bird to flee. Sure. Those of us who are you know, stuck on the land, getting up a mountain is really difficult. Mm-hmm. For a bird that flies, getting up to a mountain is no different than just going anywhere for a bird. Mm-hmm. And so fleeing to your mountain for a bird sounds like a really good thing. Mm-hmm. That's where my mind went. Yeah, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think they are the idea is this is a place where you'll be safe. You know, the mountain, it's harder to scale the mountain. This is a place where you'll be safe. This is a place where you won't be easy target practice for those who are wicked, who are drawing their bow in darkness. And yes, but um, it is a dangerous, dangerous time. It's a dangerous time, he says. And verse 4 kind of totally changes the whole mood of the psalm. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. 
So the Lord is in His holy temple. I don't think this ultimately is a reference to Jerusalem. This is a reference to heaven itself. Remember Isaiah 66, 1, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house I will build for me? It may be that the foundations of the house are being destroyed, but the throne is secure. The throne is in heaven and it is immovable. It is striking to me how often in the midst of pictures of horrible things on earth, we are reminded that God is on the throne. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the people were in Babylonian captivity. Uh, They had experienced the devastation uh, that was associated with that. They were slaves in a foreign land. And Ezekiel is shown a vision of the Lord on the throne in Ezekiel 1. Uh, particularly the latter part of Ezekiel 1. In Revelation, the Christians were being persecuted severely. But in Revelation Revelation 4, God is pictured as on the throne. In the midst of a world where the foundations seem to be crumbling, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It is unshaken by the events of earth is unshaken. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And, and very fact, the Lord is in heaven. What's it mean? What's it mean? Well, I'll tell you what Psalm 115 verse 3 says it means. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He's in control. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In the midst of all this confusion on earth, God's throne is unshaken. And notice how His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. What did we state a moment ago about the wicked shooting at the righteous in darkness? In verse 2. They were shooting in darkness to escape detection. Do they escape detection? The Lord, His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Remember back in Psalm 10 verse 11? Psalm 10 11, The wicked said to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden His face. He will never see it. He won't see it. Psalm 10 11. The answer in Psalm 10 and verse 14 The psalmist addressed God and says, You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. And so here, again, the Lord's eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. And this word for testing is used in um, Psalm 7 verse 9 as well. By the way, I, I I think of the Tower of Babel when I read this. That a man is busy making that tower that reaches into heaven to try to make a name for themselves. And the Bible says the Lord came down to see the tower. In Genesis chapter 11 verse 5. Hey, they think this tower is monumental. They think this tower will be a memorial to them forever. And God has to almost like come way down there and where is this thing? 
Now, obviously, it's figurative language, but it's God sees and knows all. But it's a way to show us how small what we're doing is. Do you think God's throne trembles? When Hitler and the Japanese set their eyes on world conquest? I think God weeps to see man's wickedness in man's inhumanity. But as far as a threat, He is not moved. Oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. As we've said before in the Psalms. And the Bible says, it begins describing this righteous and wicked person. In verse 4, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The the wicked person loves violence, in verse 5. In verse 7, the Lord loves righteousness. And because the Lord loves righteousness and some love violence... The Bible says those who love violence, my soul hates. Those who perpetuate such pain and, and, and hunt the innocent person and shoot at them from the darkness. The Bible says people like this, the Lord hates. I, I don't mean to criticize an idea that you will hear me state sometime. That God loves the sinner, though He hates his sin. I, I think I can back that up scripturally. There are also passages that speak of the Lord hating the sinner and the sin. I'm not going to remove either one of those from the Bible. But when the Bible emphasizes the Lord hates the one whose soul loves violence, that's just a way to show us how horrific that sin is. And verse 6 says, upon the wicked he's going to rain snares. Now, usually we get to the last part of this. It said, upon the wicked he'll rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And usually we emphasize the fire, brimstone, and burning wind, and for good reason. But snare, when you think of a snare, who, who do you think catching? Who do you think about catching, or what do you think about catching in a snare? Rodents. Okay. That's okay. That's maybe a correct answer, David, but it wasn't what I was looking for. Yeah, it, was, it is uh I think about catching a bird. Maybe a pheasant, for example. Um I think about catching a bird. But um, maybe a wet footed red <laughs> It could be. It could be. Yeah, it could be. I was still back on the ground. But this is but this is the idea though. 
The idea is the one who is told to flee like a bird to the mountains. Now God's catching birds. God's catching these ensnares. It's like the wicked are the birds that are being trapped. You know, Proverbs 1 uses the picture of the wicked person laying a snare for the righteous person and ultimately he's caught in that snare. And this is that same kind of idea. Now, I think all of you will, will get this. Fire and brimstone. What cities of the Old Testament do we associate with that? Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14. And he's using Sodom and Gomorrah and the events that happened there. He could be reflecting upon that. And using that as an illustration to what happens to those wicked people, to what happens to those who love violence, to what happens to them. Fire, brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And of course, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is told in Genesis chapter 19. And, and it's used as an illustration sometimes in the New Testament. In Luke 17, 28-32 of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 6-9 through and Jude 6 and 7. As judgment at the end of time. So, upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. God's character is that he is righteous. And some of us study this morning in Psalm 97, in verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. The Lord loves righteousness. That is His character. And because He loves righteousness, those who are righteous, who are, were the ones uh, that were being uh, persecuted, and the ones who are being tested in verse 5, and ones being persecuted in verse 3, they can rest assured in His nature because He loves righteousness. Because He is righteous, He loves righteousness, and they will behold His face. Does beholding someone's face, beholding God's face in particular, refer to temple worship? Psalm 24 verse 7, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That's Psalm 27 verse 4. There may be some fulfillment in the upright beholding His face in temple worship. There will be a greater sense in eternity in which we behold His face. David? Uh, the New King James translates the end of that verse, His countenance beholds the upright. Hmm. So, okay, it changes the subject and the object there. I don't know which uh, the Hebrew uh, supports I would um, 
just from word order, more naturally translated by the way the New American Standard translates it. But I will say this, and this is a problem you encounter in the Psalms quite a bit, that often in the the poetry sometimes condenses language. And there are not the signs of the direct object which are common in some of the other parts of the Old Testament. There is a marker for the direct object where you can tell what is the subject and what is the object. And um, just in passing, when when a Hebrew teacher would put on his test he was teaching the sign of the direct object. And he put that sign of the direct object for the, before the word horse. And the sentence said in Hebrew, the apple ate the horse. Now he's trying to teach him a direct object. How do you think most students translated that? <laughs> the student translated it. The horse ate the apple, and he and he would mark it wrong, showing them that that sign of direct object was there. But in this case, it's not in the verse, and it's not in a lot of poetry, which sometimes gives you sentences like that. Okay, and as we stated before, we may face different trials, variety of trials, and a variety of degrees. Um, there's really no answer in this psalm what can the righteous do as far as anything we consider an activity as far as do this, do that. It's just a picture of who God is. It's a picture of Him. And I don't mean to minimize your difficulty because I'm sure some of you face difficulties that would bring me to my knees and some where you are doing much better than I would be doing. But I am saying, however profound or however light our difficulties, this is our answer. The Lord is in His holy temple and His throne is in heaven. Our answer is who He is. And imitating His character, He is righteous. We seek to practice that. We seek to walk in His way. And ultimately, I think this psalm shows us sometimes in this life, sometimes in this world, He brings down those who are Powerful and punishes them. He lifts up those who are broken. But I think all of these are a picture of what he is going to do on an unparalleled scale in eternity, in in final judgment. So, in a sense, while this psalm is not talking about final judgment, It lays a foundation of a God who distinguishes from the righteous and the wicked. Who punishes the wicked. Who blesses the righteous. The righteous beholding His face that will find its fulfillment 
in eternity. Any other questions? Uh, one of the commentaries we looked at uh, referenced First Kings 18 and 19 where Saul was uh, chasing David, David. And it, it's almost humorous to watch how David is prospering uh, in, in yeah. spite of the, the but, but especially you see all the snares that happen in Saul's life and his mm-hmm. attempts to get David. Yes. Yeah, First Samuel chapter eighteen and nineteen, and his um, yeah, his children, his children in those chapters are a big asset to David. Jonathan speaking to Saul, talking him out of killing David. Michael helping him escape, and uh, all of these things. You know, he is and uh, he is he is fleeing, and uh, God is protecting him and sheltering him at that time. Brad? It just reminds me of every movie where, you know, the little kids getting picked on by the neighbors and then the big brother comes in and <laughs> yeah. rescues, you know. It's yeah. Like, it's it's got to come out okay, but for a while it doesn't seem like it's going well. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, there's going to be a happy ending for those who trust in God and make Him their refuge. There's going to be a happy ending to the story. But that doesn't mean no negative events may happen in the story. And as one writer said, and I quoted it earlier, this, the psalm in a sense, his affirmation, I take refuge in you, is a countercultural, profound countercultural measure in that culture, in our culture, in any culture, that we take Refuge in God. Because there are events we can point to where that looks successful and events we can point to that doesn't look successful. But we believe it's a statement of faith that we believe He rules in heaven and ultimately He will bring everything to a triumphant conclusion for the righteous. Let me read the words again. For the choir director, a psalm of David, and the Lord I take refuge... How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone. And burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Brad, we'll let you lead that song um, once again, and another Brad, if you will lead us in closing prayer. Um, anybody else need a song sheet? Good. All right, we'll sing this. Uh, all the way through once again. Mm-hmm.
My trust is in the Lord. How can you say to me, Thou like a bird from peril, hasten to your mountain flee? The wicked bend the bow with And stealthily in darkness go the true in heart to smile. Foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous strive? The Lord is in his holy place, the Lord's throne is on high. His eyes, <coughs> his eyelids, my men souls, the Lord tries just and wicked men. Brimstone and fire and burning wind before their cup prepares. For righteous is the Lord, and He loves righteousness, and everyone. 